There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, are you led by the Spirit of God? If you think you have the Spirit of God, then where is the Spirit of God leading you? Is he leading you to become a lawyer? Maybe not, because you don't like lawyers. <coughs> but if you are a lawyer, I um, do apologise. That wasn't a joke especially intended for you, but others think that way, perhaps. Is he leading you to be a politician? Is the Spirit of God leading you to become a teacher? Is the Spirit of God leading you to become a hip uni student for a very long time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of you. Perhaps he's leading you to become a missionary in one of those Stan countries, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Perhaps he's leading you to marry the person of your dreams, even though that person doesn't share your dream at this point in time. <laughs> what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Well, if you've come here for the first time, that's what we're looking at in this last week in what we know as the book of Romans. It is the word of God, given that we've heard his voice. If you are the praying kind, I'd love you to pray with me before we continue to look closely 
and what it means to be led by God's Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity. It always is to gather, to hear your voice, and hear during the freedom of this hour in this country. Now, Father, we pray that you will please so speak to our hearts that we will indeed have our lives changed by hearing this portion of your word. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the phrase, led by the Spirit, actually only occurs four times in the New Testament, would you believe? Twice, it's in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, where the Spirit leads Jesus. And where does the Spirit lead Jesus? But into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's not exactly a romantic leading, is it? Or a glorified leading, as it were. Although, in another way, it really was. The third time is in Galatians chapter 5, and the fourth time is here in Romans chapter 8, which covers similar material, but we're going to look at Romans 8 in particular. Now, as much of what we're doing has been working through the book of Romans, as I mentioned before, and much of it has to do with God making the first move to declare us right with him to declare us as having met his standards. And that's what it means to be justified, to be declared to have met God's standards as creator and judge. And in Romans chapters 1 to 3, Paul points out our need to be justified, our need to be declared right with God. In Romans chapters 3 and 4, Paul demonstrates how we are justified how we meet his standards, that is, by faith, by trusting God's promises to declare us right with him, only through what Jesus has done. And in chapters 5 to 8, these four chapters, we read about the fruit of being justified, the blessings that flow out of having met God's standards by what God alone has done in Jesus. And these blessings flow out in so many ways. But en route, Paul is at pains to show the captivity of being led by the law if we live only by the flesh. Right, we looked at that last week, if you were here, in chapter 7. And that was in order to show the blessing, right? This is part of the fruit of justification. The blessing of what it means to be led by the Spirit. And here we arrive at chapter 8. So how does God rescue us from the captivity of the law that we learnt in chapter 7? See, all the law could ever do was rightfully convict us, convict us of our sin and condemn us to death. And as such, the law was powerless to justify us. The law could not enable us to meet God's standards. In chapter 7, Paul showed what kind of condition he and all of us would be in if we did not have God's spirit. All we had was our own fleshliness. More about that in a moment. That is, without God's spirit, we remain irreparably and impaired people. Even though I want to do good, I cannot do good if I do not have the spirit of God. 
left to ourselves, we are condemned by the law. That's why we read in chapter 7 and verse 24, although it's not there in your reading, I can see, but in um, chapter 7, verse 27, nor is it in mine. So here we go. I better write that down, shouldn't I? Chapter 7, verse 24, but if you're able to get to verse 24 there, it says, Wretched man that I am, says Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me if I'm captive to the law, if I'm captive to my own flesh, my own leaning against God, then wretched man that I am. But then he goes on to say, but thanks be to God. See, here's the incredible news, and I read on from there, and it will pick up at verse 1 of chapter 8. This is the last verse of chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Then to verse 1, which is in your page. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus frees us from the raging ocean of God's righteous condemnation as offered by the law. And how does he do this? Look at verse 3, small number 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. The law, note, was weakened by the flesh. Remember, although the law is good at diagnosing our fleshliness, our sinfulness, it cannot fix it. And remember, the word flesh is another way of describing our natural humanity. Our natural rebellion against God, our natural predisposition to reject God as God. That's our fleshliness. Isn't it ironic that our world uses the word natural to be synonymous with good? We have natural colours, natural beauty, natural cosmetics, natural food, like McDonald's ice cream which comes from natural pig fat, as if natural is good. But do note, Jesus was by nature fully human. Right? He was fully human. But unnaturally, he did not reject God. He did not sin. That's why it says he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful flesh, likeness of sinful flesh. Now, just as an aside, please note that Jesus, although unnaturally, as it were, he did not reject God, he did actually have temptation against him. He is fully human. When Jesus faced temptation, it's not as if he was like Superman to bullets, as if the bullets came to him and he went, bing, no worries, yeah, bing, as if the temptation came and I had no 
no, no, nothing to worry about, as it were. No, to Jesus, sin was more like kryptonite. It actually was tempting. It really was, genuinely was. And for him, therefore, to actually overcome that temptation, say no to tempt that temptation, was suffering. That's why the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. It was part of his process, as it were, God's plan for him to go through what we humans do, only we fail where he succeeded. Don't ever take the obedience of Jesus and therefore his sinlessness for granted. It was an active obedience. And as such, he unnaturally was sinless. And God therefore condemned sin in the flesh by seeing Jesus, his one and only son, his sinless son on the cross, dying the death that you and I deserve. On that cross where God condemned all your sins and my sins and the sin of humanity for all time in Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? Verse 4, the first half of verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Right? The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now have a ponder for that about that for a moment. How is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us? Why should I do the work all the time? You do some work now. Speak to the person next to you. Ask this question, how is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us? Have a ponder for a moment. I'm giving you a genuine 30 seconds. Okay, that was your genuine 30 seconds. Anybody got some thoughts? How is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us? Anybody? Anybody at all? Yes. Is it because last week we were talking about how like you're baptized into Jesus' death and, and everything? So are we then also baptized into his fulfillment of the law? Ah, are we baptized into his fulfillment of the law? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Any thoughts with our dear sister or against our dear sister? Not that we want to be against anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Right. So it's uh, yeah, it's another way of talking about the same thing, actually, isn't it? Now being crucified with Christ, you know. Oh, you clever things, you! <laughs> I think that's basically right. But the question beforehand we need to ask is, what is the righteous requirement of the law? Well, let me ask you that question immediately, without you talking one. Well, what is the righteous requirement of the law? Anybody? Yeah. Like, like God's standard. Yeah, yeah, it's God's standard. And if we don't meet that standard, what's hap what happens? Death. Yeah. On the slide we have Romans one thirty two. Though they know God's righteous decree, 
that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those things that they practice are all those things that are hostile to God. The righteous requirement of the law indeed is are his standards, but if you don't meet his standards, the righteous requirement, the decree, is death. They deserve to die. Romans 1.32 God's righteous decree is that those in the flesh deserve to die. This is the law of sin and death. I might just go to the next blank side and just leave it there. So, how is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us? Well, come back to chapter 8, verse 1. At the beginning of verse 1 there, we read these verses again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is that you deserve death if you don't meet his requirements. So, if that's the law of sin and death, then therefore, what is it, what is the law of the spirit of life that has set you free? Well, it's just what we had before. The righteous requirements of the law fulfilled, were fulfilled in us, or are fulfilled in us, when we are in Christ Jesus. When we are, that's what chapter 6 was all about. So, good on you for listening really well. Chapter 6 and chapter 7, it's all got to do with union with Christ, isn't it? Being in Christ, being united to Christ, I was crucified with Christ, being in Christ. Whatever happened to him happened to us. When he died, we died. When he was condemned, we were condemned. The law was fulfilled in us because we are in Christ Jesus. He fulfilled the law. We can't, but because we are in Christ it was fulfilled in us too. And as those who are in Christ Jesus, therefore, we are to live according to who we are in Christ, having had the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us because we are in Christ. So who are we? Well, have a look again at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Keep going in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can see that, can't you? Please note that the primary way to exercise the flesh is by how we use our minds. Did you note that? Where you set your mind on. But the same with the spirit. So what occupies your mind will lead to your actions. And if I'm in Christ, then I'm to set my mind on the things of the spirit, not the things of the flesh. Which begs the question, how do you use your mind? Your mind really matters. 
this is not just an academic exercise when we hear the word of God into our heads now. It genuinely, genuinely, genuinely transforms our actions, doesn't it? How you feel your mind really matters. If it's not filled with the things of God, it will be filled with other things. And when it's filled with other things, whatever captivates your mind will captivate your life. Whatever keeps you up at night all the time is what will determine the kind of things that you do because that's what you filled your mind with or you can't help but fill your mind with. And so can I encourage you, if you're the kind of person who, for whatever reason, needs to get up in the middle of the night or, or you get up because of all these thoughts, whatever they are, that streams into your consciousness, why don't you actually work really hard at filling it up with scripture instead of whatever it is that's causing anxiety? And if you're going to stay awake, why not stay awake memorising scripture instead of staying awake memorising other things that are not all that helpful, whatever they are. So go back to a portion of scripture. Go back to that part of the voice of God. It will change your thinking. It will change your life. But please take in what has been said here, though, regarding those who do not set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Look back again at verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh now cannot, cannot please God. No matter how nice you may be, no matter how moral you may be, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, then you cannot please God. But there's such nice people out there who we know aren't Christians, who declare themselves actually not to be Christian, unlike Kanye West, who has, but We'll talk about him another time. <laughs> but there are many out there who really are the nicest human beings it would seem in the world. How could, how could they be hostile to God? Well, that's what the text says, you see. I know of this, of this I heard this uh, on the news a little while ago, of a really good, competent, compassionate doctor in Perth who wanted to help people in another country, so he left Perth, gave up a number of his worldly possessions in order to use his skills compassionately to help others. Just turns out that the others he wanted to help were in ISIS. He was compassionate, all right. He was competent, all right. He was saving lives even, but the flag he flew under was the ISIS flag. And therefore, he was helping the enemy and hostile to those who ISIS were hostile to. Do you see? It doesn't matter how good or moral you are. What matters is who you serve in your so-called goodness or morality. So if there is someone who is not a Christian who chooses to say and declare that they are not Christians, yet they seem so nice, well, they're actually serving the enemy in the end, as far as God is concerned, because they are hostile to God. 
Let me bring it home even more personally. My dear father is the kindness, most generous human being you would come across. For months he used to come down with a truckload of groceries to give to us. And we just visited him two weeks ago and he just wanted to stack our car with all this stuff of food and so on and so forth and, and, and insisted that he paid for our dinner. He is kind to me. He is over generous in all sorts of ways. And when people meet him, they just think that he is the kindest of kind. Yet I know he does not submit to God as his God, even though he says from time to time that he does. Do you know someone like that? Well, how are you going to love them? Do pray for them, won't you? Do look out for opportunities to share the gospel with them because they are hostile to God, even though they may not necessarily confess that. But Christians, Christians have the spirit of God. See that verse 9? Look at small number 9. You, however, you, you Roman Christians, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, if we are Christians, did you note, it's not just the Spirit of God who dwells in you, it's the whole Trinitarian God who dwells in you. Did, did you note that, the way it was described? There was the Spirit of God, verse 9, the Spirit of Christ, so God the Father, first half of verse 9, Christ, the second half of verse 9, Spirit of Christ, and then Christ himself in verse 10. That's Father, Son, and Spirit. You see that? Let that thought sink in. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God the Father and God the Son dwells in you in such a way that Jesus himself dwells in you. That's what he's saying. You can't speak of the Spirit so uniquely and divorce the Spirit from Father and Son. So it's always a little bit dangerous to run a conference only on the Holy Spirit. But if that conference is run really well, they will always talk about the Father and Son as well. To speak about the unique role of the Holy Spirit is to kind of talk about the unique role of your left arm or something and divorce it from the rest of you, as it were. It just doesn't make sense. It's got to be spoken of in the whole context, you see. It's Trinitarian that's on view. Jesus, who is God and is without sin, dwells in you by his Spirit together with his Father. Does that not blow you away? If you are a Christian, God, Father, Son, and Spirit dwells in you. I don't know how, but he does. And if he does, then how, how then should we live? Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Please note that even if we have the Spirit, we do also have our flesh. And they are at odds. They are diametrically opposed to each other. But don't live according to the flesh. Don't go for the natural way of life. Don't go for the natural. Go for the unnatural. Always go for the, well, I was going to say synthetic, but that's a bad way to describe God, isn't it? Go for God instead of the natural. Go for the unnatural, the supernatural. Flagrant sin, please note, doesn't happen overnight. Usually it's a million small bad decisions that leads to misdeeds of the body. So kill all the little decisions that are bad way beforehand. If you know you're going to be alone at night in your room with your laptop, why don't you actually kill it by just leaving your laptop outside the room or something like that? You know ahead of time there are possibilities and there are thoughts that way. If you know you're going to eat too much, well, just resolve beforehand not to eat too much. I mean, why is he telling me that? Because you think that that's actually not a bad thing. Do you know that gluttony is a bad thing? According to God, it's something to think about, isn't it? I'll leave that one aside for a moment for you. Selfishness, envy, whatever it is that you know that is possibly there, those natural things, just kill it way back here. But another way to talk about it is to actually think about let spiritual pleasure kill earthly pleasure. Let spiritual pleasure kill earthly pleasure. Imagine there's a boy who's addicted to Fortnite. <laughs> Just imagine you know, that could be someone like that. And they play and play and play Fortnite all the time. Parents can't get him off Fortnite. So what happens? Suddenly the next day he's off Fortnite. How did that happen? There's a girl. There's a new desire. Do you see? A more pleasant desire than even Fortnite. Kill earthly pleasures with an even more pleasurable thing. Namely, the pleasures of God and his spirit as disclosed in his word. See, this is what it means to be led by the spirit. Look at verse 13 and to 15. Verse 13 to 15. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit, there's the phrase, the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, that is fear of his judgment. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. See, not only will the Spirit lead you to put to death the deeds of the body, but the Spirit will also lead you to be able to crawl those words around in your mouth, Abba, Father, to be able to know God as your Father, to call him Father because he really is your Father. And you need not fear his wrath anymore. You will be able to know him 
as one who is in intimate relationship. See, here is the spiritual pleasure that ought to take our breath away, the spiritual pleasure that ought to bring us to our knees, the spiritual pleasure that should make us want to kill earthly pleasure. Because the wonder of knowing God as your Father, why, why that's our identity, isn't it? God is the Father of the fatherless. He watches out for the widows. He protects the orphans. And no matter where, where you are, no, no matter where you come from, what you've done, if, if you are in Christ Jesus, you can know him as no other person in this world outside of Christ can know God as their own Father. And no matter whether your own father was absent or your own father was evil, we must always remember that God, our Father, is so good. Furthermore, we are adopted children, although the word actually is sons. We're adopted sons. Whether you are a brother or sister, you are a son. I think, oh, come on, how does that work? Well, the language of sonship is synonymous with children, but it really, is at the heart of the idea of sonship is inheritance. That is, we stand to inherit everything the Father has. Dear sisters, you are as much a son of God as I am part of the bride of Christ. More significantly, we are adopted heirs, adopted sons. Adopted children are chosen. No. But natural children, why, we may not have been chosen. And our adoption flows out of the blessings of justification, right? It's the fruit of justification. As such, adoption is the highest blessing that God gives us even higher than justification, even higher than meeting his standards. For when we are justified, we know God as our judge. But when we are adopted, we know him as our father. You see, that's why we need not fear anymore. Remember, justification is a legal idea. Adoption is a family idea. To be declared right with the judge is incredible, but to be loved by God as our father, well, that's, that's staggering. Do you know God as your father? Do you really know him as your father? Because if you're not sure, then please do talk to someone about it, won't you? You may have been coming for a long time to church or even into uni Bible group, but it's best to be transparent, open, talk to someone about that. The shame of, of feeling like, ah, oh, I'm, just, I'm just pretending here is something that we really ought to just put aside and, and come before the Father and ask him for forgiveness and, and come to know him as our Father only through the Son. And it'd be great to talk to someone about that if you're not sure. But if you do know God as your Father, you know that, then bathe in the truth that you can only do so if his spirit is working in you. Because you can only do that if the spirit is in you. You can only know Jesus is your Lord if the spirit is working in you. 
and and the battle that you face within you is actually a good sign. Don't don't go into despair. You think, oh, I'm always conflicted about whether I'm always tempted, and I, I want to go this way, but I know it's, it, that's actually a sign that the spirit's at work in you. So, firstly, rejoice if you have that struggle. Then, walk in step with the spirit. But what else does the spirit lead us to? Where does the spirit lead us? Look at verse sixteen. Verse sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, see, heirs, sons, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't that great? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit will testify that we are not only God's adopted children who can call him Father, but also that we are fellow heirs with Jesus. Stand to inherit what Jesus inherits. Pure, untainted glory with the Father. But the path of that glory is suffering. Nowhere does the Bible teach that we will not suffer. There is a false gospel being taught out there that if you have enough faith, you will not suffer. That is a false gospel. I can remember when my first wife was dying, there were some Christians who came up to me and said, the reason she is is because you obviously don't have enough faith. Can you imagine that? Firstly, the Bible never promises that we will not suffer. In fact, the Bible promises that we will suffer. Isn't that what it's saying here? And secondly, it actually says, you know, if you're going to pray, ask if it is God's will. But in asking if it is God's will, they thought I was doubting. But God's in control. You see, we will suffer, whatever it is, the, the effects of this broken and divided world of sin, whether it's relationship breakdown or mental or physical health issues or tragedies or opposition or persecution or just sheer hardship in life. I was on the phone to someone who is in um, amongst an unreached people group yesterday he was sharing with me for the last kind of two, three months, they haven't been able to sleep. His wife is getting about three hours sleep each night because of their children. Just the hardship of that. There's children going through all sorts of things. The youngest child is unable to feed very well and so on. So they're just exhausted from sleep. Can you imagine just living off three hours of sleep per night? Now, that's just life. Right? But then there's opposition in the fact that they are Christians in a world that really hates Christians and doesn't want Christians to be there, and they really have to walk around very with much fragility. That's just normal. What am I supposed to say to them? Oh, you haven't got enough faith? No, this is suffering, normal suffering. We're going to hear more about that in the rest of Romans chapter 8 next year. But here we learn that God's spirit will lead us into suffering on route to glory. The glory of not only being with Christ, but also of ourselves sharing in his glory. So, as we close, if you are graduating at the end of this year, we do wish you all the very best for whatever the real world has in store for you. 
If you're just going through exams and returning to us, where we're looking forward to having you back. But either way, we pray that you will be led by the Spirit. Led away from sin. Led to God as your Father, as His adopted Son. Led into suffering en route to glory as fellow heirs with Christ. May we bathe in these blessings to live according to the Spirit for the glory of God the Father. Will you pray with me? Thank you, dear Father, that you lead us by your Spirit, the Spirit of your Son, to put sin to death, to know you as our Father, and to lead us to glory through suffering. But help us, we pray, to so identify ourselves as fellow heirs with Christ, that that will be our security, no matter what happens in life, and therefore joyfully serve you wherever you take us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think Jake is going to continue to lead us in prayer. Yeah, he's going to continue praying now. So prayer is just how we talk to God and how we show our faith in him. So if you're praying kind, please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and all your blessings. We thank you that we can meet here in Australia as followers of Jesus without persecution. Thank you for how much you have blessed us with the Uni Bible Group this year. For many of us, it has been an amazing time of growth in our faith, and we cannot thank you enough for this. We pray for those of us that have any final assessments and exams coming up, and that you will look after our members, and that we will continue to prioritise our relationship with you and fellowship with others. We also pray for our members who are graduating this year. We pray that they will rely on you in all future decisions and options that they will have to work out next year. We pray that you'll provide them with work and support. Lord, we pray for the Murdoch Christians United Group in Perth, WA, and we praise you for the involvement of students over the past semester. We pray for wisdom as a committee for 2020 is decided. We pray that the current committee will be able to help with the transition of new members, and we praise God for the dedication of the current committee and pray that the new members will be willing and eager to serve. We also pray that as the semester gets busy, students will continue to come to Bible studies and talks so that they can continue to grow and be challenged in their faith. We pray that students will also continue to invite their non-Christian friends to events so that they can hear the gospel message and come to know God. We pray now for persecuted Christians in China. In China, the government sees religious groups as a political threat and has been further tightening its control over minority groups such as Christians. In incidences across the country, authorities have confiscated Bibles, raided churches, and arrested and fined church leaders. We pray that the church in China will experience revival and that Christians will grow both in maturity and in number. We praise you, Lord, that in times of persecution, the church is adapting and showing resilience. We also pray that for those taking on new leadership roles, that they'll be faithful servants. Finally, we thank you for most of all, for sending your son Jesus to this earth to die in our place on the cross. 
and that through him we can have new life and be able to spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.